Welcome, one and all, to RFK All The Way. This is Matthew Tower, your host. We are going to discuss Bobby's phenomenal presidential launch speech that happened yesterday, April 19th, and it feels truly historic. Our special guest is the esteemed Lori Spencer, an independent JFK historian and co-host of Maverick News. Hey, Matthew. Welcome back home to Austin. Thank you. After your trip from Boston, I hope you had a safe trip. Yes, I did. And I feel like I've been floating on a cloud. And perhaps coincidentally, today is 420 and it is your birthday. Happy birthday, Lori Spencer. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, this has been a great day. I mean, who could ask for a cooler birthday present than Robert F. Kennedy Jr. deciding to run for president and doing his big party the day before your birthday? It just doesn't get any better than that. Absolutely. And of course, you've been such a fan of the Kennedys and the legacy of JFK and RFK for such a long time. So this must feel like a truly transcendent moment for you. It was surreal. I haven't quite accepted that this is really happening yet. I was on the air live covering it for four hours yesterday. You'd think by now it would have sunk in that this is real and we're really doing this. But I feel like I'm having a dream, you know, and I I haven't woken up yet. Is it like that for you? I mean, you were there in person. It must have seemed much more 3D and real for you. Yeah, everything you're saying resonates. How about we start off a brief commentary about the historical significance of yesterday and what that represents to America and to the world? And then we'll go into some commentary on the speech. And then at the end, we'll do a little on the ground what it was like to be there in person since I had that privilege. My take is this is one of the most potentially important events in American history. And I say potentially because we got to see this campaign through. We got to get Bobby into the White House and we need to gather that critical mass of people to pay attention. We're still in that early, early stage where it is a relatively small microcosm of folks who are paying attention to this. However, for those of us who rock what JFK's presidency was and what his brother Robert's run for the presidency was and what that meant in the context of American history, and I feel goosebumps as I say this, I feel like we're on the verge of American Revolution number two or the reboot of USA or USA 2.0. That's what is possible. That's what this campaign represents. And a historical arc here, which I'm guessing will line up with your analysis, Lori, and I'd love to hear your take on this. Ever since November 22nd, 1963, we have unfortunately, I believe, been living in kind of a fake democracy to the extent that the intersection of state and corporate and military industrial complex and CIA power have operated behind the scenes such that our elections have been at least in large part a farce. And I think most people have no idea about that, unfortunately, because the Warren Commission and its many, many sock puppets have so thoroughly convinced the American public either that it was Oswald by himself or some others, and, and people look down all kinds of other rabbit holes. But once you understand that it was a state act. Once you understand that it was a coup d'etat from within, then you get, you know, we haven't really had a legitimate democracy since then because everything has been influenced in some way or other so so much from behind the scenes by this, I would almost kind of call it a fascism light or a covert fascism. And when I say fascism, I want to be clear that I'm not directly comparing the United States to Nazi Germany or Mussolini. It's not a comparison in terms of those regimes. I'm not saying the United States is as bad as that or something. What I am saying is that when you have 
these bundles of power that the origin of the word fascism comes from the bundles that when you have these collections of power operating behind the scenes, you don't get to have a real functioning democracy. And I believe Bobby's run is going to restore a true functioning democracy to America. And that's, it's a systemic change campaign. It is not just let's put this guy in the office. It's let's have a systemic change to America to restore what America can and should be. That for me is the historical significance of this. As far as the historical context of this and how it fits into, say, the past hundred years, the past century of the Kennedys in politics, you know, it's been 55 years since his father, Robert Kennedy, ran for president. 55 years. There aren't too many people left on this planet who remember that campaign or who had the chance to cast a vote for him in the primaries. It's been 60 years this November since they killed President Kennedy, and that generation is leaving us very quickly. There aren't too many left who remember President Kennedy, except maybe when they were little kids. So this means a lot to that generation. You know, it's important that, of course, the youth are going to elect him. The younger generations are going to carry him to the White House. But it's so important to our parents, to our grandparents' generations who still have those traumas in their minds and those unhealed wounds in their hearts and their souls that they've never been the same since. You know, they were traumatized as children. We've got a whole generation of Americans who, as children, saw Lee Harvey Oswald killed on live television, who grew up and saw Robert Kennedy killed on live television. And they lived through Dr. King and Malcolm X and so much violence in the 60s and the Vietnam War. And is it any wonder the boomers are kind of messed up in the head, (laughs) right? You would be, too, if you lived through all of that. It would be closure for that generation. And I think mm. it would be the, one of the coolest things that they could see before they shuffle off this mortal coil, before they leave this world. Wouldn't it be cool yes. to feel like, you know, the, the cycle is complete and that Robert Kennedy's son became the president of the United States and, and carried on their work? Well, the word that occurs to me there, Lori, is redemption. You know, I saw someone write that Bobby Kennedy becoming president would be the greatest redemption arc in American history, or certainly of the last century. And it would just be a catharsis accompanied by the systemic reboot for real democracy. So to have the emotional catharsis, the redemption accompanied by government by the people, of the people, for the people, once again, would really be amazing. Let's jump into talking about what this campaign is and and the vision he laid out in his speech. I think this was clearly the most powerful, inspiring, beautifully stated and motivational and slam dunk best presidential launch speech I've ever heard of our lifetimes and possibly ever. I mean, it really is just, it was next level. Like this was in its own category. I cannot think of anything I've ever heard from a politician. And I've heard quite a few. This this was in a completely different category. I want to just start by presencing something here. His mission statement, it was so wonderful how it tied in the entirety of the speech could in some way or other be come back to the mission statement took notes here, and if I get something wrong, I'd call this a paraphrase. Bobby's mission in the campaign and in his presidency is to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that is threatening to impose a new corporate feudalism on our country to commoditize our children, our Purple Mountain's majesty to poison our children and our people with chemicals to strip mine our assets and hollow out the middle class and to keep us in a constant state of war. So we're going to get into some of the details of all that because those were all backed up with the longer stories within the speech. But just that mission statement to end the corrupt merger 
of state and corporate power. So here's where I wanted to talk about fascists. So if you look at the etymology of the word fascism, you can Google fascism etymology, right? It comes from fascio, the Italian word for bundle, which in this case represents bundles of people, but its origins go back to ancient Rome when fascists were a bundle of wood with an axe head carried by leaders. Okay, so here's the connection is that the corrupt merger of state and corporate power, and I would throw a word in there as well, which would be media, right? For example, Ukraine, when you've got the state driving to war, when you've got the military industrial complex, the CIA, all the weapons manufacturers and contractors who are part of that complex, and then you've got the media who behind the scenes are being fed talking points literally by the government, right? And the government's telling them what to say. That is a fascist. That is a bundle. It is a bundle of power and people who are all operating in one direction. And here's the other thing is like there's overt fascism in the classical way, in the way we know of it in recent regimes like Germany or Italy during the Second World War. But I think the United States, it's almost like we need a new understanding of a new kind of covert fascists that covert bundles of power that are happening in such a way where if there's no transparency and most people don't have the time to do the research and they just believe what they read in the media, because why wouldn't they? It's just going to run roughshod over everybody. And then that applies to virtually every area of his speech. So what are your thoughts about the mission statement there, Lori, of ending the corrupt merger of corporate and state power? You know, that same thought hit me yesterday, Matthew, when I was watching it. I was thinking to myself, this guy is the only anti-fascist candidate, unless somebody else enters the race. But if you are opposed to fascism as deeply as I am, if you see the troubling signs of fascism rising again globally, you know, NATO, in my mind, is the Fourth Reich. And this is a fascist government that we currently have in the United States. You're right. It's more of a covert fascism because they know the American people would never stand for it if it was a militaristic kind of Hitlerian or Mussolini type of fascism. Of course, the American people would stand for it. So they've been sneaking it up on us incrementally and then really turned up the heat these past few years where it's becoming more overt fascism. And people are catching on to that. But yes, Mussolini defined fascism as the the partnership between corporate and state power. And that's precisely what Bobby has been fighting his whole life and what he just declared he's, you know, that's his mission statement, why he's running for president is to end that merger of state and corporate power. That by definition makes him an anti-fascist candidate. I'm not talking about Antifa or any of that silly shit. You know, those guys aren't serious. (laughs) They act like fascists, most of them. (laughs) They're not really anti-fascists. I mean, the true anti-fascists, the ones who want to keep this from becoming a fascist nation. I see this in ways that are similar to and different from your perspective on this, Lori. I wouldn't go so far as to call NATO a Fourth Reich, because if you look at what the Third Reich was in Nazi Germany, there were so many aspects of that that are very dissimilar to what's happening here. I think calling it that distracts attention from what really is happening that is so problematic, insidious, and harmful. My take is really the element here is the covert aspect, the fact that this stuff is happening behind the scenes, but we still have an enormous amount 
of nominal democracy, the nominal democracies, we still can go to the polls and vote for blue or red. We still, to some extent, have free speech, although it has obviously been massively eroded by the CIA and the FBI censoring social media behind the scenes. However, we certainly haven't gotten to a point where the First Amendment has been thrown out, right? So I think the fact that the people who live in the United States, the normie citizens who don't really know what's going on behind the scenes, they can point to all of these kind of nominal aspects of democracy that are front and center and then use that to believe that we live in a free society. That's the great trap. That's the great power. And that's what makes this whole control system work is because there is an illusion of freedom that's accompanied by some level of actual freedom. But the limits around that freedom, the constraints around that freedom that are imposed at the edges are what makes it possible for this state corporate merger behemoth to run roughshod over everybody is because everybody thinks they're free when they're not. Just to be clear, everything we're saying is our commentary. We're independent. We're not associated with the campaign. If we come back to just what Bobby said, it's his mission to end the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. If we just take that literally and don't throw buzzwords in there like fascism or fascist or anything like that, and we just look at it literally for what it means, and then just look and say how much state and corporate power corruption merged together is happening in the United States. And you just analyze that and you say, where is it not happening? It's almost like a funny right. line from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The question is not what are we going to do? The question is what aren't we going to do? The question is not where is there a corrupt merger of state and corporate power in the United States? The question is where is there not, right? And that is what his speech really outlines, I think. And where I wanted to tie that into next is to talk about, he brought in the personal history, which was quite moving, wasn't it, for him to outline his Irish grandparents arriving and taking to politics like a starving man to food because they'd been fleeing this horrific British oppression against the Irish Catholics. And it was like, oh, wait, there's a space here to create rights and freedoms that were inconceivable in our old society, in our old world. And then for him to go from there to the American history and to say, hey, Actually, the American Revolution began as a rebellion against the merger of state and corporate power, right? With the king of Britain holding shares in the tea company that was imposing this unjust tax. So what did you think about that tea off that Bobby gave us with his personal <laughs> yeah. history and the American history? Well, I love that he chose Patriot's Day for the launch of his campaign. That was very significant to choose April 19th because that's when all hell broke loose at Lexington, Massachusetts, and the American mm. Revolution began. And, and that's how he led his speech, and that led to how his family came here in the first place, why they came here to escape, yes, the oppression of the British crown, potato famine in Ireland, the challenges that they faced in the United States being Irish, and all the discrimination that their family suffered through generations. But I, what really got me about the personal things that he shared in his speech, at least at the beginning, was it, he surprised me. I, I've heard Bobby probably give hundreds of speeches over the years. I've listened to a lot of his speeches. I've never heard him talk about the death of his father, mm. where he was, how he found out, going to see his father in the hospital and just barely getting there in the nick of time before he was taken off life support and getting to say goodbye to him. And, you know, I, I've heard that story, but he doesn't tell it very often. And he usually does not talk about that in something as public as a big speech like this. And it was just, it, it was like he was just burying his soul out there, you yeah. know, just letting oh, all yeah. the raw, all the raw wires hang out. 
it was such a candid speech also. He addressed up front his past with mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol and, and the times in his life that he's fallen down. And I thought that was incredibly brave and also very smart because he's getting all the dirt out there right up front so that his enemies can't use it against him later. And he's acknowledging his mistakes in life. And I think that's very important, you know? We'll move to the next major theme, healing the divide. There were a number of rally signs that were distributed, Kennedy 2024 and I'm a Kennedy Democrat. But the most popular sign, the one that everyone wanted, was heal the divide. And he started talking about how we are more polarized than at any time since the Civil War. And the Dems and the Republicans are describing this fracture in apocalyptic terms, and people are preparing for a dystopian future. And he didn't come out and say it, but he was sort of hinting like, this is an environment that could, in theory, lead to a civil war, right? He didn't say exactly that. But if you read between the lines, and there's certainly a lot of sort of bombastic commentaries that have said things like that. And it's just a horrific thought. It is the most atrocious thought imaginable that we could end up in that kind of situation. And and he quoted President Lincoln, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And what he said was that the cure to all of this is the truth, right? The truth will heal this divide. And this is where we can connect it in with his dad's campaign. And he talked about Bobby Sr. traveling all around the country and telling people the truth. And I think there are kind of two types of truths there. There's like telling people the truth that they didn't know because the government's been lying to them or at least misleading them, right? And then there's the truth of giving someone a hard truth or giving them a perspective that they didn't want to look at. But once they look at it, they realize it's really important to see that point of view. For example, and he obviously was an anti-Vietnam War candidate. He obviously was trying to stop that war, or that was the point of his campaign. But then he had students in college asking him to extend their deferments. And he said, well, do you think it's really fair that 45% of our paratroopers are black? And a lot of them can't get out of this war because African-Americans aren't able to get their kids off to college, so they couldn't get that deferment. Is this fair? And so that's that's not like a factual truth. That's like, here's an important way of looking at it. Here's a perspective that you need to consider that you were overlooking. And once you look at this other perspective, you suddenly find that there's a moral truth there. I believe fundamentally, Lori, that the truth will set us free, that that will be one of the most important parts of this campaign. It's going to be a combination of a few things. I think there are going to be a lot of metaphorical high priests who need to be defrocked, okay? And Anthony Fauci is obviously one of them, right? Absolutely. And that's right. I think we're going to get to that in a future episode after I finished reading the real Anthony Fauci, which yeah, I started, but I want to get, but we're going to talk about that. Yeah, we're going to talk about that another time, but we're going to yeah. just briefly touch on that here. Also, the high priests of the military industrial complex who have been, you know, and he used the expression lying through their teeth during the Bay of Pigs that JFK was receiving a whole bunch of lies from the CIA and from Alan Dulles and Curtis LeMay and all those folks. And here, you know, there are a lot of lies that have been used to get the United States into a whole series of wars from Vietnam to Iraq. And currently, we're hearing a lot of lies from our government about Ukraine. So if he's both telling the truth, like, in other words, this is something the government has literally been lying to you about. Here is what's actually so. Here's what's going on in reality. And we can measure reality either through observing it or exposing the documents or exposing 
the videos or exposing the data. We're going to actually find out objective reality truth and then the moral truth. Telling America, here's the moral truth, the moral truth of these dynamics, like the moral truth of when we have this particular policy and it hurts these people in this way, here's the blowback from that. Right. Here's what comes back to hurt us when we hurt other people. That's the moral truth. of. And I think when he gets out there and does that, it's going to shatter so many illusions and it will obliterate the matrix. I think most Americans live in a matrix where they are so infused every day with propaganda. They turn on CNN, they turn on MSNBC, they're infused with all this stuff and they don't know what's real. And to have a presidential candidate and then a president Point by point by point, expose them to what's actually true in opposition to all the propaganda that has been fed through the mainstream media and the CIA's Operation Mockingbird and all the journalists who are paid by the CIA to expose the truth about decades of governmental lies and then to give Americans the moral truth. I think that will heal the divide. It will help Americans reconnect and discover that being pitted against each other is the worst thing that we can have in this country and to discover that they've been manipulated into that and to say, you know what? We are Americans. We're not red. We're not blue. We're not. In fact, actually, like, look into your soul. You're not the tribe that you were assigned to or that you signed up for, that we're all one humanity. We're one people. We're one nation. And we need to come together for a higher purpose. I think that's what Bobby's going to do. What do you think about healing the divide and the truth, Lori? Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, Bobby's been a truth teller all of his life. He's just going to tell you what he really thinks. You know, these attacks on him didn't just start three years ago, didn't just start during the COVID pandemic. If you go back and read the archives, I mean, he's frequently been a target through his entire career because he talks about those uncomfortable truths. He holds up a mirror to American society, and that's very uncomfortable for people. So he triggers some folks, and that's exactly why they're attacking him now. Although I can't really disprove anything he has said about the vaccines or about COVID during the pandemic. Again, these are uncomfortable truths that a lot of people aren't ready to hear. But you're right. It's the only way forward is you have to reconcile with what's true. And we live in a society right now where everyone distrusts the government. Everyone distrusts the media. There's conspiracy theories abound, right? And some of them are just crazy, like the whole QAnon thing, (laughs) right? I mean, this is something that we have to deal with. And we also have a mental illness epidemic in the United States as well. It's dangerous for our society to have so many people living in such deep delusions. It's like waking up a sleepwalker. It's time to wake up, America. It's time to wake up. He's the guy who's going to wake people up, and he is waking people up. But you can expect a tremendous amount of resistance because a lot of people don't want to wake up. They're living in their dream world, and they're comfortable there. He's going to shock them out of their comfort zones and force them to face some uncomfortable truths. A hundred percent. And I also think he has a really special talent to do that with love. He led off that segment about healing the divide with the story about his own family and that he loves his family, even when they all disagree about politics. And, you know, I think basically all of us have had that awkward experience where we're sitting around the dinner table or Thanksgiving or whatever it is with a whole bunch of family members. And we have that awareness of, gee, I see politics really, really differently from most of the people at this table. A lot of Americans can relate to that. That can be kind of awkward and can lead to family squabbles and it can be really painful and it can actually be alienating. 
even when your whole family right? is Democrats like the Kennedys. <laughs> well, and, well, it's he's, not well, like his, half the family's Republican. They're well, all Democrats, but they still be vehemently disagree. Well, here's the thing that he said that was so powerful about that is that he's loving them, even if they disagree with him and even if they don't support his run. And even those family members who don't support his presidential run, can you believe that? Kennedys who don't support Bobby for president sent him notes of love and effect. They emailed him notes of affection and love as he was launching his campaign. So what the point of that is we must love each other, even if we disagree with each other. And I'm very moved to that about that. And I'm kind of on the verge of tears here myself, because I want to share with you and share with everyone here that I have had a lot of poison in my heart for my whole life or most of my adult conscious life related to politics. And because I've seen so much what I would call oppression or injustice and the impression and it's like hating oppression and injustice is can be kind of a motive if you don't hate the person behind it and you just hate the actual act and say like this oppression is wrong, this injustice is wrong. And you get very kind of intense about it. The problem is if that just festers in one's heart and it has festered in my heart, that it has really poisoned my soul to an extent. And I, and, and just being in front of this role model who is bringing love, a politics of love, a politics of redemption, a politics of the soul, a person who's coming from that place has, I think, an ability to tell the truth in a way that can heal, that somebody who is really, really angry will never be able to create healing and will never heal the divide no matter how much truth they tell. And that is one of the huge differences between Bobby and certainly Trump, obviously, and sp almost any politician is that if you watch the speeches of his father, certainly his uncle, and especially Martin Luther King, and you listen to the words speaking the truth, when Dr. King said, we are going to love our white brothers and sisters, even as they are oppressing us and against us, because we know that they are our brothers and sisters, I'm paraphrasing. And we, we want to have a relationship with them. We want to love them out of their oppression. And I think Bobby is going to love this country out of its divide. And I kind of envision some people as having like an MSNBC sign over their heads and other people having a MAGA hat on their heads. And they're so like, they have these very, very intense negative feelings and opinions. And they may not even know what's true there. If that truth can be delivered with love, then hopefully the entire American family can be like the Kennedy family. And even if after some truth telling we disagree, we can start loving each other again instead of hating each other. And I think that's very important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. It's so true. That's Bobby's nature. I think a lot of that just comes from being a father of six kids, yeah. seven now because he's adopted Cheryl's daughter. But yes, can you imagine? I mean, most of us probably don't have the experience of what it's like to raise seven children and to come from a family of 11 children himself. You know, you learn a lot about how to love. Even when you have to discipline your children, you do it with love. He's, you know, he's great with children. He raised his own children so well. And it was great to see them all there yeah. yesterday. I believe all six children were there and grandchildren too. There's a metaphorical way in which the president is a parental figure to the country. And it's very symbolic and mystical, like this Imago thing where the president is the parent of the nation. 
There's a professor at UC Berkeley named George Lakoff who talked about this and the idea of the nurturing parent versus the strict parent. I think he was onto something. I didn't quite like how he, he was almost saying all the Dems are the good guys because they're the nurturing parents and the Republicans are the bad guys because they're the strict parents. I didn't quite appreciate that element of it. If you just throw out the D's and the R's and you just say, what is the embodiment we need here? You need love. You need honesty, you need boundary setting, you need standing for truth, you need standing for doing the right thing. And that is not democratic. And it is not Republican, it is not blue, it is not red. It is much more just human. It is human, it is common sense, it is sanity, and it's emotionally mature, emotionally integrated. And Bobby is that person. And I think it's been a very long time since we've seen someone like that. And even when we've had glimpses of that, really, I think we've seen a lot of folks who were at least somewhat captured or corrupted. And, you know, he talked about corporate capture, and we're going to get to that in a minute. The other blessing with Bobby is that he hasn't held elected office. He's independent and free from the kinds of forces that have taken so many politicians and warped them to priorities that are different from the American people. And his whole life and career, he was with the people and he was doing things to make people's lives better. I mean, what better qualification could you have to be, become a president? You know, there's a, a question that's just been burning in my mind, Matthew, <laughs> yeah. that I've been wanting to ask you about this campaign kickoff event since yesterday. Um, I know you probably had the chance to talk to a lot of people there in the crowd when you're yeah. milling about and socializing. Yeah. And I was just curious, like, what was the political bent if people told you? Were there Republicans there? Were there Democrats there? Libertarians, independents? What did people tell you about how they had voted before and what their political faith is, if you will? What denomination of the political church they were in? What were Bobby's final statements in his speech? There's always an element of on the Statue of Liberty, like, send us your poor huddled masses yearning to breathe free. He said, I'm paraphrasing, I'm welcoming in the homeless Democrats, the homeless Republicans, the homeless independents, all of those folks, blue, red, green, whatever independents, were all going to coalesce around this. And I found that very much reflected in the folks who I spoke to and met. There were Ron Paul supporters, for example, Bernie folks, obviously Dennis Kucinich gave a great introduction, people who loved him. Look, I believe Bobby's running an American campaign. He's running nominally as a Democrat and he didn't quite address this. And all I can do is speculate. You know, I think there's a lot of reasons that are tactical, strategic and or traditional um, or just like that's kind of what you got to do when you're working in a two party system. He's running as a Democrat. But fundamentally, Bobby's campaign is about refounding America, in my opinion. It is about rebooting the country. So I think the fact that his campaign embodies that is going to just suck in so much energy from people who really actually want that and don't want to be in some sort of silly tribal political war. He made a comment about we can't just be neocons with woke bobbleheads on. That's meaningful on a whole bunch of levels because it's about are we actually independent critical thinkers who are citizens of this country and of the world or are our brains essentially tribally programmed and then we're just spitting out whatever we've been told? So I think those who want to be citizens of the country and citizens of the world are going to see that this is an American restoration campaign and it's not about the parties. On that exact point. I was taking notes, of course, during his speech, and there was something that he said that just jumped out at me, and I loved this quote so much that I put it out in a tweet with a picture of him at that rally he did last year at the Lincoln Memorial. It's this wonderful yes. picture of him standing in front of the Abe Lincoln statue, and of course, okay. Lincoln was a Republican, but the quote is, my aim is to convince every Democrat 
that you're not a Democrat and every Republican that you're not a Republican. I love that. That is correct. She was talking about how the corrupt merger of state and corporate power wants us to be tribally pitted against each other, right? They want this situation because if everyone is fighting around the issue of the day, such as abortion or gun ownership, in other words, if they can figure out what's the most polarizing thing where people can get really angry at each other, that completely distracts from thinking, critical awareness, focusing and doing something about the way that the corrupt merger of state and corporate power has taken over all the really big areas, like the environment, like the war machine, and so on. So getting out of the tribal thinking and thinking of ourselves as uniting as Americans, and then focusing on what do we need to have to have a healthy, great country, like to truly have a great country, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be a house united under Bobby Kennedy. Just to finish up on the kind of idea of lies... What an interesting historical commentary. Back when JFK was president before the tragedy in Dallas, 80% of Americans trusted the government. Today, 22% trust the government, 22% trust the media. And why is that? That's right. you know, we actually hear about that a lot. This is discussed a lot. But this gets into what James Douglas called the unspeakable in JFK and the Unspeakable, in that wonderful book, which is the unspeakable truth that we had a coup in 63. And that since that coup there has been this increasing level of corporate state, media, military industrial complex control. And of course, to maintain that control, it's all based on lies. If they told the truth, it would all fall apart. Imagine for sake of discussion that LBJ had gotten up and said, we're going to have to send in a lot of kids here because their military con contractors need to get paid and we need to make these weapons. And, you know, or George W. Bush had said, you know, Saddam Hussein has a lot of oil. I, I think we need their oil. Uh, well, at least Donald Trump yeah, told the yeah. truth about that one. He said we yeah. need to take the oil. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he did say that about Syria. That was funny. Yeah. But I mean, largely speaking, it's all lies, right? And Americans are, that's the thing. It's very hard to know exactly what the lie is and what's underneath the lie. You can't immediately see through it and know the truth. But Americans have common sense and they can feel it in their guts when they're being lied to. And also the lies are ridiculous. <laughs> such such little trust. And, you know, he didn't quite say this, but I'm also hoping we are going to get some sort of reform process on the media. You know, I was watching an older talk with Bobby from, it was like 20 or 30 years ago, but he was talking about how the media used to be independently owned. There used to be thousands of locally owned independent TV stations, radio, and then that all got consolidated into a few corporations that own everything, right? Thank God we're in the internet age where there really is a possibility of an independent media, and we didn't have that before, but I hope that'll be part of this program is creating some sort of reform so that the media is not captured the way everything else is. Something that Bobby has yeah. talked about for many, many years now is that we need to bring back the fairness doctrine. A lot Thank of younger you. people you, don't even know what that is because we haven't had it since, I think, 1986. But, yes. uh, you know, any time that uh, any political commentary prior to 1986 on any major, you know, news channel or in, in the press, you always had to give the other side equal time to respond, right? Yes, um, that's but right. But we did away with that in the Reagan administration. And Bobby's been making noise about that for years. So yep. I think that would do a great deal to restore equality and quality to my profession, the news, is to bring back the fairness doctrine. And I think that there's a really good chance in a Kennedy administration that that would happen.
Absolutely. As well as a whole bunch of other reforms that are necessary in the contemporary era. Like there has to be a way to not have (laughs) the government telling Facebook and Twitter and all the other companies what they can and can't publish and what people can post on their accounts. And And who's allowed to have an account and who gets to have a platform and who doesn't? Yes. And I know you have your feelings about Elon, and I don't want to go too far down that particular path. I just wanted to say that I personally am very grateful that he bought Twitter because if he had not, we wouldn't know anything. We wouldn't know what was being done behind the scenes. And so the Twitter files really did reveal the extent of just absolute out of control FBI, CIA censorship and control over the flow of information on a range of topics, including on COVID. Okay, let's talk about the environmental parts. We just saw an environmental president. The environmental element was so profound and so moving. He just went no holds barred right to the core of what's at stake here. I don't know about you, but I got chills listening to him talk about 80 to 90% of the butterflies and the songbirds are gone and his kids can't experience the the sacred creation. And I know a lot of that stuff. And I just personally have a hard time even thinking about it because it's so overwhelming and devastating. And I felt so powerless about the environmental issue for so long that it just seems like humanity has been converting this amazing creation, this amazing world that we are so privileged and lucky to have been born into this world and we've been just destroying it. And for him to go right into that was really moving. So what are your thoughts, Lori? Yesterday, my co-host, Rick Walker, and I, we were doing live team coverage of this thing for four hours. Now, Rick, he's a Canadian, he's a conservative, but kind of a Trump kind of guy, you know, like he can't vote for Trump, but he always supported Trump. And so I'm often bouncing ideas off of Rick, and I just want to see what he thinks about things and what his reaction is to things. And I know that he really likes all of Kennedy's platform, but like so many conservatives, he's touchy about the environmental stuff, right? Because there's this perception with voters on the right that Bobby's some kind of enviro wacko, you know, that he's one of these guys who goes out and throws uh, oil on, you know, priceless paintings and does silly things like that to save the planet, which is not what he's about at all. And Rick made an observation, and I couldn't agree more. He said, actually, what he's saying doesn't sound crazy to me at all. He says he sounds more like an old Theodore Roosevelt, you know, a Teddy Roosevelt kind of conservationist, you know, not a climate change nut job, but just someone who wants to preserve the planet, preserve the resources. And I said, exactly. Bobby is an old school environmentalist. He's not on board with a lot of a lot of what's being pushed out there because a lot of it just doesn't make sense. You know, he's been suing polluters his entire career. He's been holding them accountable in the only way that they understand, which is penalties in court. You know, you've got to take them to court. And that's how he did it. You know, he cleaned up the Hudson River that way. So now big companies think twice before they try to pollute the Hudson River because it's going to cost them. And, you know, that's the way he does it. That's his kind of environmentalism. And I think once we can get conservatives and Republicans to understand that, that that's where he's coming from, that will be the key to convincing them to vote for him because they like everything else he says. Beautifully said, Lori. Any American with any kind of moral compass inside them who cares about their lives and their kids and the world, if you just listen to his story about how he worked with these fishermen 
and, you know, ended up taking all these legal actions that achieved a whole bunch of victories and what they were going up against and to see the river burn, you know, have oil slicks everywhere, the river dead in large parts and having horrible colors of purple and just the chemicals running through it to understand the significance of all that and how that all ties together. They can't fish anymore. His story there was just so powerful and moving. I think anyone who listens to it will say, well, this is the right thing to do morally is to protect our rivers, our water, our air, our fish, our crabs, our butterflies, our world. I think they'll understand that through the human story and the spiritual aspect as well, I think is extremely powerful. However, one of the key points of that whole story that really stood out for me is that when I have thought about environmental struggles, I often think about them through lawsuits, right? Like there's this thing happening and it's bad. And whether it's the loggers or the coal plant or the oil company, they're doing something they're not supposed to do legally. So you sue them. And so maybe you get a partial victory through a lawsuit. But Something a friend of mine said to me once is in environmental work or environmental activism, there are no permanent victories. There are only permanent losses. So you maybe save them all for a while, or maybe you protect a little area for a while where you get a victory where the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge is protected for the next four years, but then you get a new administration who does the wrong thing. And then you're always fighting uphill. And so I think his story revealed the possibility but then also the limitations of using the existing laws as a framework to try to hold these polluters back. What we absolutely need is fundamental systemic change. We can't keep doing this. We can't keep fighting uphill. We actually need systemic change. And, you know, what he said was that this was classic agency capture. The agency was a sock puppet for the industry they were supposed to be regulating. So it's, again, that corrupt merger of state and corporate power. That theme coming right in to, you know, his story about the Hudson. It was such a great story about how there was this huge sort of renaissance and the Hudson became a model. But then he went right into, wait, there was actually a sad ending here because General Electric is dumping all these PCBs into the water, right? And now he said out of the 2000 families he represented, there's only two left. And there's many fish bases that are now too toxic to eat. Commercial fishing is almost totally closed. What happened? And he said something that I would slightly disagree with here. I would just frame it a little differently. He said free market capitalism was working for the fishermen. The problem was that corporate crony capitalism did not work. The corporate crony capitalism of GE. And I I really think that we need a reboot on how we think about capitalism in this country. I think we need, I don't know if you call it fair market capitalism, because if you just say free, we already have more than enough evidence that there's a certain segment of our society, which is composed both of corporations and as well by plenty of private citizens who believe that free market basically means you just go for it. You just try to maximize your profits. And if that means you drill and you extract and you use the natural resources of the earth, that's what you do because that's what's there for us. And there isn't any implication of some level of fairness. In other words, the fairness of what's the impact to other people. How are you considering all that within the world? I think there needs to be a reboot on how we think about capitalism. But what are your thoughts, Lori? About the idea of fair market instead of free market? Honestly, that is for Bobby to decide. Only he can decide what his platform is is going to be. Fair enough. I would be presumptuous to try and speak for him. And to be clear, I'm definitely not speaking for Bobby. This is my take on the problems we have when the free market is unrestrained, runs amok. I think we can count on Bobby to try and rein capitalism in like we haven't seen since Teddy Roosevelt busted the trusts. When he talked about there's no daylight between good environmental and economic policy, right? 
the polluters say we have to choose between economic prosperity and environmental protection. They say we have to choose between those things, and we actually don't. In fact, protecting the environment, doing the right thing for the environment, and having a good economic system, these things actually are completely intertwined. So just to take it a step further, I think there needs to be something in the way that the market works that there is this sense of public benefit around everything. To have a president who truly focuses on the environment in a holistic manner would be revolutionary for this country. We haven't actually had that, I don't think. We've certainly had presidents who are good on the environment. But to have someone who's been fighting on this topic for so long, who knows it inside and out, would just it would just be amazing. I'm going to just quote something he said here. God talks to humans through religion, wisdom, art, music, poetry, and books, but nowhere through as much detail, color, grace, and joy as through creation. When we destroy a species or a special place, we diminish our capacity to sense the divine and to understand who God is and what our potential is. So here's the significance of that. Bobby is, in my opinion, sacralizing nature. Sacralizing is a process. You can sacralize humans. You can sacralize animals. It's like, where do you find the sacred? And Bobby is saying the sacred is in nature because if we if we don't change course, it's not a good future. It's not a good future for us if we don't turn things around with how we are caring for creation. This level of speech, speaking through both the politics, he's speaking through the facts about it, but he's also speaking through this higher elevated level of language. I think it's so important that he can reach people of faith and help them to see the significance of this. And the last thing is, he was alluding to a silent spring when he talked about the butterflies and the songbirds being gone. And the other thing was that the nature is a social safety net, I thought was amazing. That piece about how during the Depression, when people were destitute, they were going and fishing and crabbing. And there was something there that they could rely upon. And that's not the case anymore. What we are losing is so inconceivably painful to understand what's happening. And also the comment about the privatization of the air in the lungs of our children and pollution being an act of theft. I just want to say one thing personally. I hold a peace and conflict studies degree from UC Berkeley. So I went into a deep dive on nonviolence, conflict transformation, social justice movements, Gandhi, King, to some extent, JFK and RFK, although I studied more about them since that time. But in any case, I had a, a sort of a bitter feeling in my soul as I went through those studies, which is why is there not a visionary leader in my lifetime? When I kind of looked around for that visionary mm -hmm. leader who was both a visionary and someone who had the actual practical ability to motivate a movement around him that would take power, take power democratically and institute the kind of reforms we need. I was like, why is it that I was born into a time period when we don't have any of those kinds of leaders and they all, they're all gone and they're never coming back? And I, I was so, so despondent, Lori. And my feelings of despair about our present and our future have been replaced by this boundless joy and optimism. I truly felt for the first time in my entire life that I could say absolutely and all in that I was proud to be an American yesterday. Mm -hmm. Yesterday was the happiest day of my life. Yeah. That was That's how it was for uh, me. Yeah, It was magical. It was truly, truly magical. And I felt the sense of the divine in that room. And the last thing I want to say is that if you say, what is the source of Bobby Kennedy's power? It is love. Love is the greatest force in the world. And Bobby has found it inside himself to reach that place where he is truly coming from his heart 
I don't know his entire story and what his journey was from when he was a kid and he lost his uncle and then his dad and what was his personal path to get to this point. I imagine, obviously, of course, someone who's been traumatized that way must have gone through, you know, certain demons of some kind. And he has clearly gone through that path, whatever that journey was to reach the place of leading with love and to have transformed any sentiment of bitterness in his heart into loving the world, loving the children of the world, and being able to create that space for reconciliation. There was something I wanted to share really quickly about how this announcement has affected my life. Because as you know, I was involved in a draft Kennedy campaign 15 years ago, back in 2008. I was desperately trying to convince him to run. After eight years of Bush, uh, I felt that you know, the country was desperately in need of a rescue even then. And I thought he was the only guy who could fix it. But as I've told the story before, it wasn't the right time for Bobby. He had small children. He wanted to focus on being a dad. His wife wasn't supportive at the time. And of course, Obama was just unstoppable. He had a momentum that I don't even think Bobby could have successfully challenged. It was Obama's time. But now I have to tell you, I've been a journalist for 35 years. I've been covering presidential campaigns since 1988. The first campaign that I covered, the first politician I ever interviewed was then Vice President George Bush, Herbert Walker Bush. And so that's how long I've been doing this. And that's how long I've been involved in politics as a journalist. And I always had to maintain that objectivity, that distance when I was covering these campaigns. Of course, I was never all that excited about either one of the candidates. <laughs> you know, There was no candidate I felt like cheerleading for or that I, could, I would lose my objectivity if I got too enthusiastic about them because there just hasn't been anybody that exciting in my lifetime that captivated me that way that I really believed in that much. And so this is the first time in my 35-year career as a journalist that here I am just, you know, putting it out there saying, well, my objectivity's out the window. I'm all in for RFK and I don't give a damn what you think. (laughs) I'm in, you know, that may compromise my objectivity as a journalist, but there's no way I could possibly pretend to be detached at a moment like this. My, My whole heart is in this. My soul is in this. And I've been wanting this to happen for 15 years. There's no way that I could just be objective, you know? So I I realize I may be compromising myself as a journalist, and that concerns me ethically. But, you know, I'm also a tough critic, and Bobby knows that about me. If I feel he's doing something wrong, I'll I'll be honest about it. You know that about me, Matthew. (laughs) If I really think something, I have the freedom as an independent journalist now to say what I really think. And I am allowed to express an opinion. I no longer work for the corporate media and they can't tell me what to say or not say. So I'm just going to be honest and upfront and say that I'm all in for RFK all the way. Absolutely. And as am I. And, you know, I think there certainly is a space for journalists who have biases and disclose them. And that's part of journalism is people who are also on the opinion side. And I think that's what this podcast is going to be about. So what it was like to be at the event. It was extraordinary. It was overwhelming. It was inspiring. It was... The pageantry, I mean, the brass band was amazing. Like, those guys were really talented. And, you know, listening to various songs of Americana played by this brass band, was like, wait a second, I'm feeling a patriotic spirit in my heart. And, you know, to see the American flag regalia everywhere, and then for the curtains to open, and then you've got this enormous flag behind them. It was extraordinarily well-produced. 
I've been to bigger events like Bernie events and stadiums. I've never experienced anything like this. I was actually at an Obama inauguration party in January of 2009. And this was way beyond that. Smaller than the well, yeah, inauguration obviously. party from what I remember. <laughs> but it was, it was just so perfectly done. And the people there, people were on fire. People were so excited. That people crowd were, was know, passionate, yeah. boy. They yeah. were fired up. Well, when I was telling people afterwards stuff like, hey, this was the happiest day of my life, people were like, I get it. I grok it. And there are a lot of people who, you know, could see that redemptive arc unfolding and to be part of that moment, to be part of this history. You know, it, it was really like this special. You could not have imagined anything more wonderful than what happened yesterday. And there was an opportunity to do a meet and greet there if you donated a certain amount of money. And I, I knew I'd be donating money to the campaign. And I was like, why not? I'll just donate this amount now. And then I can be kind of part of this experience. And, what was uh, that like? So there was like three or four seconds that I got to shake hands with Bobby and exchange like two words and got a photo with him. And that was super cool. Well, that was definitely one of the most exciting things I've ever seen in my life. And in 35 years of doing journalism and covering presidential campaigns since the Reagan administration, <laughs> that's how old I am, right? <laughs> so what bothered me, and of course, this is just from a journalist's point of view, is this is a major event. This is a historic event. No matter how you may feel about Robert F. Kennedy Jr., you can't deny the newsworthiness. I think every major network should have been carrying his entire speech live last night of the nephew of President Kennedy, the son of Robert Kennedy, announcing that he's running for president. That in itself is a huge story. And you would think that every news network would have taken at least some of his speech live. It was a two-hour speech. I understand if ABC and CBS and Fox couldn't stay with it the full two hours. But we saw nothing, nothing from the mainstream media. We saw some of the local news stations in Boston were covering it. But outside of that, just live streamers and a few people with their phones, certainly they would have interrupted programming for President Kennedy when he was running, for Bobby Kennedy when he was running. If you go back and you watch all the networks carried Senator Kennedy's announcement in 1968 live. CBS News was, you know, giving it an hour of coverage with Walter Cronkite. It's, it's astonishing to me that the media is ignoring him this way. For me, it's not astonishing at all. I'm completely unsurprised by all of the coverage here. We've seen who and what the media is and what their agenda is. And, you know, it goes back to what he said, putting an end to the corrupt merger of state and corporate power. And I personally would add the word media on top of that phrase. When you actually think about state, corporate, and media power, remember, this is the same media that barraged us nonstop with Russia was most likely to blame for the destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines. I mean, mm -hmm. that one incident was so preposterous. And there's a video out there by Matt, and I can't pronounce his last name. No one can. Matt, oh, Matt Orphelia, Orphelia. Oh, Orphelia, yeah. Matt Orphelia. Orf Matt Orphelia, you actually yeah. know how to pronounce his last name. I actually met oh, him, I love him a couple months ago. If anyone has not seen that video, it is just insane to watch. It, you, it's like that's the transportation into the insane asylum to watch nonstop the media mm -hmm. claim that Russia blew up its own pipeline. And I'll tweet that that video out. But so to say if that media that is so obviously in the tank for the Biden administration, they're not going to cover this. Right. I went back and watched Bobby Sr.'s um, presidential campaign announcement speech um, the night before. Right. And I think it was like Roger Mudd who was doing the introduction. And he was yeah. talking about everyone is against him. Everyone's opposed to him. The Democratic institution, the party leaders, the party bosses are all against 
are all opposed to Robert Kennedy running this presidential campaign, which Bobby Jr. talked about yesterday. But the opposition to truth-telling has just increased exponentially. Like We have multiple orders of magnitude, more opposition to the truth from the media than we did in 1968. So I'm not surprised at all by what happened with the mainstream media. And, you know, at some point they're going to have no choice but to cover him because he's going to become the president. But, (laughs) you know, we have a long path to go. It's quite amazing that Bobby at the midway point of this speech talked about how he'd been censored for the last 18 years. And we're going to be hearing from him a lot the next 18 months. And then, of course, the media de facto censored him by not even covering this speech. Now, there was a moment there, which I experienced in real life, as everyone else did, who was at the event, that was a little out of the blue and a little surprising and disquieting and weird. And Lori, I think we talked about it a bit, which was when oh, that yes. sort of emergency alert alarm. happened. And so that was that was an eyebrow raiser, to say the least. And oh, yeah. I don't know what everyone else was thinking, but all I can, you know, I kind of sense that maybe everyone in the crowd kind of had a similar kind of reaction. I almost felt like we were all experiencing it in a similar way, but that could just be my imagination, which was like this mixture of a little bit unsettled and also like, heck no, no way. Like whatever this is, we're not going anywhere. We've got Bobby's back and, you know, Bobby's not getting bullied. Bobby's not getting intimidated. We're not getting bullied. We're not getting intimidated. And the thing is, nice try. Really, yeah. And that was hilarious. That was hilarious nice that try. he said that. Yeah. Now, what I wish I'd done was to do a little try to just do some investigating. I wish I'd spoken to the manager of the hotel or something and just asked, hey, what was that about? Because I want to know what that was about. And it was interesting that that alarm went off just after his talk about the CIA, which we will get to in our next episode. So that's my report on that piece of it. And if anybody does get some info on that, if anyone finds out or finds an article that goes into, well, what actually did happen there? And is there any investigation? And was this some sort of chicanery by a certain agency with three letters? I would love to see that. So feel free to post that on a Twitter thread just so we know what's going on. But I certainly have no idea what actually happened. It could have been chicanery and it could have been someone playing a practical joke who pulled an alarm. It could have been anything. And I certainly don't want to pretend I know. Well, that's a hell of a thing to joke about. I don't know what happened, but if anyone does get any real information on that, I'd like to see it. So if someone can do some research on it, that would be cool. And certainly I think everybody had a thought going through their mind of something like a certain three-letter agency may have done something here to mess with us or him. I have to ask this, even though it's kind of painful, what kind of security presence was visible around him? It looked like there was an extremely professional, efficient well-organized security presence and it was everywhere and it looked like it had been very well put together. I was so relieved when after the speech, when he's walking through the crowd, shaking hands and stuff, I was very happy to see that he had five or six big burly guys around him and uh, that gave me peace of mind. I'm going to say one thing about the horse race now. I just think he's going to win. So that's it. I call him future President Kennedy or Mr. Future President. If I was speaking to Bobby right now, I would address him as Mr. Future President. All right, we've got a speaker. Jay, go for it. Well, that speech yesterday, to be honest with you, it felt like a historic moment to me. Lori, 
what you mentioned about media not covering it. I think that's a theme that we're going to see a lot because it feels to me like RFK Jr. is going to be even more censored than Bernie was in a lot of ways and Trump because he's going after the intelligence agencies in a way that no other candidate seems to have the courage to do. So I think they're going to try to avoid him as much as possible. Um, and when they do refer to him, what I've been seeing so far is they just refer to him as anti-vaccine activists. They don't actually list any of the other things he brings to the table and any of his impressive record fighting for the environment. Like you guys just spoke about, this is a moment where everyone who really believes in this, I think we all have to realize this is going to be a, a grassroots thing. And that's how the media will have to cover it and will have to have the debates because if they have the debates, it's over. Like he has all the winning positions <laughs> and the more people hear him talk, the more people are going to love what he's saying. And with his last name, they know that he has the credentials to actually carry through on the promises he's making. So I'm a really excited right now. And I'm excited to cast my first vote as an American citizen for RFK Jr. I just recently got it. and I'm just excited. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I'm excited for you. Congratulations. Yeah. Today. Do you guys have any suggestions on things we can be doing now to get the word out there? And how do we get this grassroots thing really going to make sure the media is forced to actually give him the respect he deserves? Well, Jay, I'm a recruiter for the RFK presidential campaign, and we definitely have work for you to do. If you'd like to volunteer, you can go to kennedy 24 Dot com. There's the volunteer tab and you can sign up there. I know we're going to need lots and lots of help. Also, if you have any kind of social media presence, there's a lot that you can do just reaching out to your followers. And Jade, congratulations on becoming a citizen and so exciting that you're supporting Bobby. Okay, so we have Harold. I'm in Washington, D.C., traveling back from Boston after attending the event, which I could only describe as inspiring and incredible. The words he spoke, were stirring. They were to the heart. He spoke off the cuff for almost two hours. I don't think I've seen a politician do that for these, maybe my lifetime. So to the last man's comments on grassroots activism, you know, I've been looking all, all around the web. Things are popping up, new sites, new Twitter accounts, new things are popping up that are promoting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And what I'm going to try to do is consolidate a lot of those on my PAC website. So People can go there and say, okay, here are all the different venues where you can get information on Kennedy. A lot of the comments on Kennedy's Twitter feed are, what are his policies? Well, you know, his poli he's been speaking about his policies for the last 30 years. I mean, a lot of them. That's right. That's yeah, right. so if you want to know what his policies are, it's not hard to find them. And my Rural and Red Pack website has got a selection of videos over the years, long-form videos, some of them over an hour, some of them shorter where you can listen to him and see him and, and understand what his heart is, what his policies are, as well as some of the new issues that have come out in the recent past. So if people are interested in that, go to ruralandred.com as well as the other sites, and let's try to consolidate on all these sites the information that are positive for the campaigns. So when people go to the sites, they can see other places they can go to get more information. Thank you so Thank much, you. Harold. That's awesome. I'm so glad yeah. you got to go, Harold. You'll never forget yesterday. Amen to that. It was amazing. If anybody listening has not seen Bobby's speech yet, maybe you just caught some highlights. So if you want to see the entire speech, we covered it yesterday on Maverick News, and I'm going to do an encore presentation of the full speech. This time it'll be on my YouTube channel. Fantastic. Fantastic.
In our next episode, we will cover the rest of Bobby's launch speech, including lockdowns, the war in Ukraine, and much more. On Twitter, follow at RFK all the way USA. Again, that's at RFK all the way USA for additional episode notifications, Twitter spaces, and commentary. Follow our guest, Lori Spencer, at RealLoriSpencer on Twitter. This podcast is independent from and does not speak for Kennedy24. To learn more about the campaign, go to Kennedy24.com to watch videos, volunteer, and or contribute funds. Let's create USA 2.0 together. Subscribe to this podcast and see you on the next one. Thanks, Lori. Have a great night. Enjoy your birthday evening. Oh, thanks, Matthew. Have a great night, guys.